Welcome to this episode of the Essential Church Podcast, an ongoing conversation about some of the most important issues facing the local church today. I am your host, Andrew Arndt, and today we're picking up a conversation that we started last week with award-winning historian, author, and broadcaster Tom Holland about his book, Dominion, How the Christian Revolution Remade the World. Part one was an incredible conversation. If you haven't listened to it, you need to go listen to that one first. Uh, but we pick up with uh, with part two, where we dive deeper into the notion of human rights and how we really got the world that we live in. It's an incredible conversation with some really beautiful and poignant personal moments that Tom shares with us here about his writing of this book and kind of the spiritual experience of it. We think you're going to love this conversation. Without further ado, here is part two. Okay, so let's 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 talk about where this takes a dark turn, though. You know, when you talk about the the age of empires, if I follow your logic or or this, the way you narrate the sequence of events, it it sort of became true of the British Empire that when they were horrified by these abuses of human rights and these injustices, the the, the thinking, the rationale sort of went like this: We've got to have freedom and we've got to have justice. But in order to have freedom and justice, we've got to civilize them, and in order to civilize them, we have to colonize them, and that's where sort of what you're saying, the imposition sort of starts to happen. Is that right? Well, well, I, 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 think, it's, I, I think it's slightly more complicated than that because, <laughs> okay. because what, what the British are doing, as, as every imperial power does, is to take assumptions that they don't realize are assumptions. Mm. They, 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 they are taking things that they take for granted that, that, that other people don't take for granted. Um, and in the case of the British, they are taking this idea that, you know, you can trace back to, to, to Augustine that we were talking about, mm-hmm. that, that you can divide society into mm-hmm. what in the Middle Ages is the seculum and religio, but by the 18th century in in English-speaking world has become the secular and religion. And in, in, in Protestant Britain, the idea is that um, everyone has... You know, religio is not the exclusive property of monks or hermits or friars or whatever. Everyone has a religio. Everyone has religion. And religion is your kind of personal bond to, to, to a god. That, that's you know, personal to you. What, do you. what is your religion? It's basically what do you believe in mm. in, in, the, in, in, in your heart. Um, but the converse of that is that the, the dimension of the secular has grown. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> something begun by medieval popes in the 11th century has, has expanded to exclude mm. the idea of there being something called religion and shove it to the sides. Mm. So when the British go to India, they're not interested really in converting the people of Hindustan, the Hindus as they call them. Mm. They're interested in making money. Mm-hmm. The East India Company is there to make enormous amounts of cash. And they feel that this is fine because this is what you do in the secular dimension what you do in the secular, absolutely fine. It's nothing to do with religion. And they take this assumption to India, to Hindustan, and they impose it on the world that they're in there. But of course, in in India, this is a wholly alien concept. No one in India has a notion of a religion. No one has an... It's it's all part of the way of life. It's all, everything, yes. But of course, the British get there and they say, well, okay, so what is the religion of the Hindus? And they start to construct this idea that there is a religion of the Hindus called Hinduism, holy you know, English invention. <laughs> News to them, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and that there is a world of, of, of the secular. And this, over the course of the British Raj, which is kind of, you know, two centuries and more, beds down so effectively because the, the elites in India are, are educated in English. And so they just kind of breathe it in in the way that, 
you know, people might breathe in a radioactive leak. You don't even realize that you're doing it and it changes and transforms you. By the time the British go and leave, they, they leave behind this idea that there is the secular and that there are religions as something that the, the, the Indian elites absolutely accept. And so to this day, India is a secular republic. But what's happening in India at the moment with Modi, with the, yeah, the yeah. promotion of Hindutva, the idea that, that India should properly be Hindu, it's a kind of, it's a kickback against yeah. that essentially Christian idea. And in Dominion, a quote, uh, an Indian scholar who brilliantly says about Christianity that it proceeds in two ways. It proceeds through conversion, which yeah. is obvious, but it also proceeds through secularization. And yeah, he's right. absolutely right. The idea of the secular yes. is a Christian idea. And the fact that Turkey, India, Japan are all secular, yep. to that degree, they have been Christianized. They have been Christianized. <laughs> and, 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 to, and to be clear, for the yeah, I, I grew up in Malaysia, which was a British colony of Malaya. You know, I'm, I'm profoundly grateful for the influence of, of the British. And, and I feel defensive whenever people sort of want to say a sweeping statement about empires all being sort of an abuse of power and abuse of religion. The, the way I see it, and, and, and I, well, the way I see it is the, the British Empire, Protestantism acted as a restraining influence and a positive influence in the way the British ran their empire versus some of the ways the other empires ran, as you point out in the book. And, and it doesn't change the fact that even if an empire is infected by the same disease that all of humanity is, i.e. the temptation to abuse power for your own benefit, the British empire or the gospel remains the diagnosis and the cure, I mean, from a Christian perspective. But, but the, 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 the kind of the, the deep-seated assumption, of, you know, every, pretty much everywhere that, that empire is bad right. and that right. Western empires, in Western imperialism in particular is bad, you've got to say, well, okay, so where does this idea come from? Right. Again, it's like, it's like, right. it's like right. human rights. Yes. People just assume, yeah, imperialism is a bad thing. For most of human history, <laughs> empire has been something that 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 is just again part of the fabric of human fabric. civilization yeah. Yeah. and the, the the idea that empire is bad mm. might just conceivably have something <laughs> to do with the fact that the the prime emblem of the faith of most of the european and american yeah. imperialists is a cross right. which is the ultimate subversion yes, of the yes. symbol of imperial power. And the language with which um, most people uh, in, in, uh, in the European empire certainly um, combated European power derived from Christian. these Christian traditions. And this oh, yes. absolutely exemplified by Franz Fanon, this kind of French, um, uh, came from French West Indies, um, deeply educated by the, you know, deeply steeped in the French educational system, ends up fighting the French in Algeria and, and writes books that to this day remain the kind of seedbed for anti-imperialism, post-colonialism, kind of third world uh, revolution against Western power. But he says, okay, so where does this idea come from? And he says, well, you know, essentially it comes from the old, from the famous saying, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. Fanon is not in any way a Christian, overtly. And yet he has the honesty to recognize that yeah. actually, ideologically he is. That, what that, I, what that, I, the motor for everything is, is, yeah. is, is this kind of radical teaching. What I read you as saying, Tom, is that it's almost like Christianity has a self-correcting impulse inside of it. So because of the notion that 
uh, our God is, he was crucified as a criminal at the hands of the most powerful empire the world had ever seen. And also the notion of conscience. So as you talked about that the law of God can be written on the heart, there's always something inside of Christianity that will fight back against it and critique it, which was most powerfully exemplified in the Reformation. But I think what I read you as saying is that that Reformation instinct, it's always in there. It's always inside of Christianity. So as soon as the empire grows or whatever it is grows, the institution grows, there's something inside of it that jerks back against it and goes, wait, 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 remember this. And that, that sort of dynamic plays out over the course of Christian history, Western civilization. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I think that that's particularly true in the Western Latin form of, of, of Christianity. So that, that, that great papal revolution in the 11th century essentially yeah. provides a kind of prototype for every revolutionary moment that's, that's followed since, because it's it's the, the, the idea that it's possible to uh, for, for an entire society to be born again, to, mm-hmm. to be washed in the waters of baptism, to, to be cleansed of sin. Is it is so powerful that it, it it brings you know emperors to kneel in the snow and kings to be whipped through the streets of their own cities. Um, it sends armed warriors to, to the limits of the world to Jerusalem. It 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 creates entire new ways of understanding the world. But the problem with that is that um, you know the papacy itself ends up seeming inadequate to this re- revolutionary message and so that that then as you say generates the reformation yep. but then the reformation in turn generates yep. the enlightenment and yep. so it goes on and so it goes on and so it goes on and basically um western civilization is 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 basically like san francisco built on the san andreas fault <laughs> you know you can have long periods of stability but every so often you are going to get a massive tremor and everything is going to come crashing down yep. and then you have to rebuild it and I, I think that a huge part of the problem that, that Christianity faces in, in the West is precisely that it has been so successful, that it's, it's the most hegemonic and, and influential way of understanding what humanity's relationship to the cosmos should be. But that very influence, that very hegemony, that very power makes people feel nervous for deeply Christian reasons. And so there's a sense in which what's happening at the moment is that Christian traditions of anti-imperialism, of the suspicion of the powerful, is starting to cannibalize the body of Christianity itself. Right. When you look back, so many of our listeners on this podcast are pastors or church leaders. When you look back, I mean, this is this, these are two massive questions I'm about to ask, so, so tackle them as you wish. But what are, from the lessons of church history, where was the church at its worst and where was the church at its best? How can we learn from this? I, I, I think that, um, I think the idea that there have been particular moments of, of, of sin uh, and then particular moments of liberation is one that... Um, is useful and and in, in, inspirational for, for for different Christians in, in different traditions. And what you will, the, the period that you will look back on as as the kind of the golden age will will basically depend on what you think is 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 is, is dark. So and if we include progressives in in that for for, for, for progressives, obviously it's the Middle Ages. Uh, is, is a period it's it's the dark age dark, yeah. but that idea of, of of the middle age is not original to to, to people in the enlightenment it's it's original to um to, to the protestant reformation and the protestant Ref- 
the Protestant reformers, again, are looking back to the heyday of the Roman church as a period of, of, of darkness and superstition. But again, why are they doing it? Well, they, they, they are drawing on traditions that, again, are, are much older than, than the Reformation. So when you get the missionaries in the early Middle Ages going into the forests of Saxony and chopping down trees sacred to Woden, again, they are... Um, they're drawing on the assumption that there is a darkness that can be banished by enlightenment and that, that there are idols that can be toppled and that there are superstitions that have to be banished, you know, all of which Protestants and then the enlightenment philosophers will draw on. But again, it's not original to them because ultimately this goes back to the Old Testament and it goes back to the, the, the great biblical prophets. It goes back to Isaiah and to Jeremiah, you know, who, 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 who are the language of people walking in darkness and seeing a great light and the idea that, um, the, uh, the, the idols of, of Babylon or, or, or Egypt are just stock and stone. This is the great wellspring that leads Christians right the way up to the present to ask, well, you know, what is idolatry and what is truth? What is, what is darkness and what is enlightenment? And, and, and I think that that's just a kind of a constant dynamic in being Christian is that you're always kind of worried about that. You're always asking yourself about that. And it's a constant impulse to kind of to reform. That's true of, the, of individual Christians. You're constantly having to look into your heart, to look into your soul, to check that you're not so kind of succumbing to, to, right. to the darkness. And it's true of individual churches as well. So it's a very long way of saying that I think that throughout the course of Christian history, the light and the darkness are, mm. are in, you know, are, are, they're absolutely fused. You cannot have the light without the shadow of the darkness. Mm. Because, because it's the darkness that sharpens your sense of what is of what is light. Mm. And I found the, the, you know, the process of researching this book, going through the, the, the kind of just skimming the absolute surface of it, but in the very least, a sense of going right the way from, 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 uh, from the Old Testament, right the way up, up to the present day. There is no period that I covered that did not offer immense riches, yeah. immensely spiritually nurturing, powerful beautiful ideas and when i finished the book i felt this you know i i felt how arid my morals and ideals were even that i could recognize that they were christian but i i, I could also recognize that they lacked the nutrients that this incredibly powerful christian tradition provided yeah. and the odd thing is that um although I was raised Anglican, which is to say <laughs> kind of indeterminately um, Catholic, Protestant, whatever, kind of mishmash of the stuff. <laughs> I'm very happy to be there because actually I, I don't want to define myself as, as solely Catholic or Protestant because I find all of it powerful. Yeah. And in a, in a way, I, I think that, that, that for Protestants to shut themselves off from the amazing richness of the traditions of medieval Europe yeah. or, 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 or the late antique yeah. traditions yeah. Is, 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 it's a kind of a, a pointless self-denial. These, right. you know, some, someone like Francis or Abelard, you know, these are amazing figures yeah. and um, they are part of the Christian story just as much as uh, Bunyan or, or yep. Luther. <laughs> yep. Yep. All of whom are, you know, are, are kind right. of amazing as well. Yeah. yeah. At the end of the book, you tell a, a story about your godmother, and it was really moving to me, Tom, to read that personal note. In fact, I think I 
I tweeted you saying it, it, it actually made me tear up. And, and, and I'm just, I'm just, I'm just curious to you uh, to hear in the process of writing this, what effect did it have on you? You know, if you don't, you know, if it's not too personal to share, but. I, um, in a way it felt, okay. So, so it felt like a pilgrimage. Hmm. Um, I, I, when I was much younger, I did the pilgrimage to Santiago across Northern Spain. Um, and that was when I had no real interest in Christianity at all. But I, but I found the, the process kind of quite powerful. And it surprised me how powerful it was. And I felt that this, this, this book was a, a process of pilgrimage. And I, but I didn't know where I was going to end up. I kind of knew that I was going to end up in the present day, but I didn't know, you know what, 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 where would I have been? What would I have seen? And um, I, I found when I, when I reached Journey's End, I, I wasn't like Christian reaching the city of God. I mean, you know, it, it wasn't like that. But I did feel that my life had been hugely enriched by it, that um, I, I had read things and I had had my eyes and my heart opened to things that uh, otherwise I would have, sh would have been shut off. And I wanted to um, to write about my godmother because, in a way, um, she she died. And when I when the, the last time I saw her, I I left her, feeling that I would I would you know that that was it that that, that she would die and she would kind of be dissolved into into atoms and that 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 would be it. Uh, but now I'm I'm not so so confident of that. I'm not so sure of that. Um, and it, 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 it's not as though, uh, I, I wouldn't say that it's kind of hardened into, um, a, you know, a definite Christian faith, but my disbelief has gone. Mm. So yeah. I, 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 would, I would not define myself as someone who disbelieves, even if I'm not quite ready to say that I believe. Mm. Um, mm. And so writing that last chapter, I, I, I was thinking, well, I could, you know, if my godmother was alive now, I think I would, I would, you know, and I was seeing it for the last time, I would, I, I would part from her in a, in a greater, with a greater sense of hope that perhaps I would see her again. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. Thank you, Tom, for sharing that. Mm. Well, Tom, our time is about up. It's been, uh, it's been really good to talk to you. The book for our uh, United States audience is Dominion, How the Christian <laughs> Revolutionary Made the World. I am curious, are you planning on doing any subsequent works that maybe distill some of this? Uh, the book is well, 600 or so pages long, so I'm wondering uh, I, if there's any stuff that's going to come out of that that's maybe accessible, um, uh, much more accessible for the lay reader. There's, um, well, I, I hope the book is, is, is completely accessible. It's yeah. beautifully written. It's beautifully written. written. Yeah. written to, 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 to be completely accessible, I hope. Yeah. Um, but um, obviously, I, you know, covering two and a half thousand years as it does, I, I, I couldn't dwell in the <laughs> right. kind of length that I wanted to. And, and again and again, I kind of write stuff and think, oh God, I, I wish I could spend a couple of years on this. Say more about this or more about that. And, and the one period that I, I really think I, I would like to write about next, be, because in a way, I think that the, um, our understanding of it is kind of, uh, it's unsettled it's it's still pliable it's still open it's the 60s and I, I i felt writing it writing about the 60s that that decade is akin to the first decade of the reformation wow in 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 the 
the sense of 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 a kind of convulsive wow. transformation yeah. reconfiguring of yeah. assumptions that nevertheless draws on pre-existing assumptions mm-hmm. very profoundly yeah. so i i would like to to i'm, I'm hoping you know, i haven't it's still kind of inchoate idea in my head, but I'd, I'd like to write about a book about the 60s that treats it in that way as being, a, you know, a decade as seismic as the, the first decade of the Reformation. Wow. And I was thinking that in, in, the, in the book, I, um, I hook it around the Beatles recording All You Need Is Love. Yes. Uh, and in a way, the, the, the Beatles, I think, are a sufficiently um, kind of significant embodiment of what the 60s was about that... I can kind of hook it on a, a kind of biography of them because they intersect with yes. the mainstreams of the sixties in all kinds of brilliant ways. So they, you know, they grew up in a city where there's a Catholic and a Protestant cathedral kind of facing each other on a hill. They, yeah. um, they go to Hamburg at a time where the, the, the people running the clubs are all ex Nazis. So the war is incredibly vividly close. The shadow of Nazism is absolutely there. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they get their famous mop tops in Paris in, in yeah. kind of, you know, the heyday of existentialism. They come to America in the, the, the age of, of, of civil rights movement and the, yeah. the kind of growing convulsions of that. Um, and, and then, you know, you spiral towards Summer of Love and, and 1968 and uh, everything that follows from that. And um, I, I think that placing it in the context of, of the, the, the profound legacy of, of Christianity and its influence on that, I think would be interesting. So that's what I'm currently cogitating. Well, you hey, keep I, I, cogitating, Tom, because your cogitators are pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> whatever you write, man. <laughs> that's true. I, uh, what, one more thing. We're recording this, obviously, during a global pandemic. Uh, what is the church? What, what, what hope can we take from the church throughout plagues and, and, and difficulties like this in church history? Uh, how, how, how do we make it through this as, as Christians, as church? As well, it's, church? Fun, it's funny. I, I, um, I, uh, the past five years, I've, I've had this kind of running joke with a friend of mine who comes from the northeast of England, which in, in, um, in the early Middle Ages was a region, a kingdom called Northumbria. Thumbria. Northumbria was, was kind of one of the, the great uh, birthplaces of, of, mm-hmm. of medieval Christendom. Mm-hmm. And the greatest saint was a guy called Cuthbert, who um, was Bishop of Linda's Farm, this kind of island on the northeast. Um, uh, uh, he, he would immerse himself in the, in, in the North Sea up to his neck and then come out and sea otters would warm his feet. Eagles would bring him fish. He's kind of, you know, amazing figure. And um, for five years, I've <laughs> been having this kind of, it, every, every year we mark it by going out and uh, celebrating with a big meal, lots of wine, and things like that. And it's been a bit of a joke. But gradually, uh, every, celebrating each year, it's come to have a, a kind of a significance for me that's more than just a joke. And to the degree that this year we were going to celebrate, I persuaded the rector of London's oldest church, St. Bartholomew's, to actually host a, an entire service to market. And I was going to give a, a sermon on, on St. Cuthbert. <laughs> then the, um, you know, COVID-19 intervened, so couldn't do it. So I recorded the sermon um, in my house and it got broadcast, put it up on YouTube. And what I said in that sermon was that... Um, you know, I was upset at not being able to do it in the church because I first and only chance I'll ever have to give a sermon, I'm sure. But the, the example of, of, of Cuthbert, who lived at a time where, you know, there were no vaccines, when violence was something incredibly casual, and yet he became a kind of radiant figure, the embodiment of the, the, the power of this novel faith, is something 
very moving mm. and very powerful. And that things that in, in times of peace and plenty and um, you know, there's nothing to worry about, mm. you know, you can, just, you can just park these reflections about yeah. what's it like to live in yeah. the period of you know, the yeah. breaking of nations. But when you live in times of crisis, yeah. suddenly the sense of belonging yeah. to many, many generations yes. of people mm -hmm. who have framed, who have faced much worse crises, but using the same spiritual and emotional and moral frameworks that we have yeah. is incredibly powerful. Amazing. And, you know, Cuthbert lived in an age of plague. Um, there, the, he, his life was written by Bede, um, yeah. kind of great historian, who, as a young boy, lived in a, in a monastery that got wiped out by the plague. And he and, and the abbot were the only survivors. And they continued to, to, to practice the rituals of the, of the monastery, the, the daily services, just those two. Yeah. And looking at, you know, what you're, the, the, what you're doing in your churches, what's yeah. happening in churches here, you know, that, that is an echo of it. You were yes. joined in yes. doing that yes. with these, 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 these people who lived in an unfathomably different yes. world yes. You know, across the other side of the ocean from you. And yet you were joined by them. Yeah. You know, you're joined to them by that, by, by that practice. And again, you know, they, were, they would look back to, to, to Gregory the Great, the Pope, who, who sent missionaries to convert the Anglo-Saxons. And Gregory the Great, he lived in a time of plague in Rome. Um, and he wrote a great commentary on the book of Job which is probably the profoundest meditation on why, why awful things happen. Mm -hmm. Why, you know, why do good people lose their children? Why do they lose their possessions? Why do they get afflicted with disease? It's, and, you know, we, we, this is a, a, a spring that has flown throughout the course of history and that we are all born on now. And you're born on it as much as I am living in mm -hmm. England, you know, mm -hmm. you in, in, in America are as well. And it's, I, it's a kind of humbling experience that as we reach out, you know, in our isolation to our, to our friends and our loved ones. So also in a way, can we reach out to Christians who lived before us yeah. who, and, 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 and to find yeah. out you know, how they were, yeah. how are they, how are they coping? What are they up mm. to? And the way that they cope is, 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 a source of comfort because they're using the same kind of emotional building blocks that we have. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Essential Church Podcast. Our goal is always to strengthen and provoke the thinking of church and ministry leaders. And so if you found this or any episode helpful to you, please go to iTunes and leave us a review. Your reviews help leaders just like you find our podcast. And if you have any comments or suggestions on people or topics you'd like for us to cover, be sure to let us know via social media. And of course, please do share this and other episodes you find helpful around the web. Grace, mercy, and peace be with you.